Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. In May 2018, the MacArthur Memorial hosted a World War I symposium that explored how the experience of World War I shaped many of America's World War II leaders. Jeffrey Kozak, Director of Library and Archives at the George C. Marshall Foundation, discussed George C. Marshall's World War I service. In a letter to then Brigadier General Leslie J. McNair, dated March 4, 1939, regarding the limited effectiveness of instruction at Fort Leavenworth, George C. Marshall wrote, With relation to the last-named force, in this instance, the National Guard, I think our instruction is most effective, and for these reasons. We must be prepared, the next time we are involved in a war, to fight immediately, that is, within a few weeks, somewhere and somehow. Now that means we will have to employ the National Guard for that purpose, because it will constitute the large majority of the war army for the first six months. Marshall continued the letter by saying the army should be preparing its officers to lead partially trained, understrength units with limited supplies, rather than complete organizations of trained troops that would take six months to one year to form. He stressed that the key to mobilizing the National Guard units was efficient training and simple orders. That Marshall shared his opinions with McNair, the man with whom he shared living quarters while sailing for France with the 1st Infantry Division in June 17, 1917, is worth noting. Recalling their departure in an interview with his biographer, Dr. Forrest C. Pogue, Marshall said, we discovered we had units on paper that we had never seen or never heard of. I remember the trench mortar units, the 37 millimeter units, and several others. We had never heard of them, and they were on our papers. But there were no weapons, and there was no unit. We were organizing on the ocean. We had no knowledge of whether we had any of these weapons on board, and actually we didn't. It was certainly a demonstration of complete and utter unpreparedness, such as I had never dreamt in my life. The above episode, as well as many other incidents of the US Army's unpreparedness for the Great War, left a big impression on Marshall. Throughout the next two decades, Marshall was unwavering in his efforts to make sure that the Army did not repeat its past mistakes the next time the United States went to war. Marshall often pointed to his experiences, as well as those of the U.S. Army as a whole during World War I, when advocating for ways to modernize the Army's equipment, organization, and training. On the day of the United States entry into World War I, Captain George C. Marshall was stationed in San Francisco as aide-de-camp to Major General J. Franklin Bell, commander of the Department of the West. A few days later, General Bell uh, received orders to command the Department of the East, and by the end of the month, Marshall was en route to the department's headquarters at Governor's Island, New York. When he arrived, Marshall immediately set to work on the selection of candidates for the officers' training camps, the organization of these camps, and the determination of the number of cantonment sites to be located in the Eastern Department. In what would become a recurring problem for Marshall throughout the war, he mentioned the difficulty he encountered in obtaining even the most basic supplies, such as mattresses, blankets, and pillows for the training camps. Recalling the situation in his memoirs, Marshall wrote, the market had been completely gutted by the Allies, and it was next to impossible to secure anything on the eastern seaboard. Mattresses, for example, were unobtainable east of Chicago, and the short time available prior to the opening of the camps on May 15th necessitated all shipments being made by express. As a matter of fact, the pathetic difficulties we encountered in equipping the training camps to accommodate a total of 40,000 men were an impressive demonstration of our complete state of unpreparedness. On May 28th, Marshall, along with General Bell, had the distinction of escorting General John J. Pershing and his staff to their departure point. 
It should come as no surprise to anyone that Marshall was in a most depressed frame of mind over being left behind. Fortunately for Marshall, the Army's mobilization was moving at a fairly rapid pace, and he did not have to wait long before learning that Brigadier General William L. Seibert, commander of the 1st Infantry Division, had requested Marshall's service as operations officer. Over the next day and a half, Marshall worked quickly to make the necessary preparations for his departure for France. Marshall boarded his transport vessel on June 10th and immediately set to work organizing the 1st Division. In the course of his work, he learned that many of the men in the division had only received their rifles after they had completed their training and were boarding the trains to their transports. More troubling for Marshall was the fact that the division was about 20% of the original. The rest of the regiment had been taken to form new regiments. Recalling the situation many years later, Marshall said, so all but 20% of these regiments were recruits and it was quite a messed up affair when they arrived. They had no knowledge of how to drill, no knowledge of how to handle their rifles, and they were 20% of the strength of the companies. This was hardly the unit that should have been responsible for making the first impression of the US Army in Europe, but the reality was that the Army did not have any alternatives. The arrival of the 1st Division in France created the additional challenge for Marshall and his colleagues of convincing the Allies that the US Army was capable of fighting as an independent force. After the ship had docked and the soldiers disembarked and marched through the town, Marshall could not help but notice their unmilitary appearance in their slouchy uniforms and, and few traces of formal discipline. Marshall believed that this display created in the minds of the French, French officials that our soldiers understood nothing of the military business since this division was supposed to be the pick of the regular army and yet it looked like the rawest of territorial units. The 1st Division was then relocated to Gondricourt, its designated training area. No sooner had the division arrived than the French were eager to begin training the American units so that they could join the fighting as soon as possible. The trouble with this, as Marshall explained, was the French divisions whose headquarters was quartered with us was trying to take up our training in trench warfare when we hadn't even been trained in squads left and squads right and we were trying to get organized in the way of supply and things of that sort. Since many of the soldiers had only joined the division shortly before it sailed for France, they still needed training in basic, Ameri basic American military principles. In order to satisfy both French and American demands, the division adopted a program in which half the day was devoted to American training, while the other half was devoted to the more advanced French training. Training was also complicated by the long distances between the soldiers' billets and the training grounds, as well as the absence of vehicles to transport them. Marshall recalled, the division at the time was scattered over a strip of country about 30 miles long and 20 miles wide. There were no motor vehicles of any kind. Two units I found had been marching all day to get back to their billets before dark. I managed to catch them on the road at the end of the march, and they had to march all night to get back to the place for this review. One of the most formidable moments of Marshall's World War I experience took place during a visit by General Pershing to observe an exercise in trench warfare. Following the exercise, General Pershing ordered a critique, and when no officer could provide a suitable answer, Pershing just gave everybody hell. Marshall, who had not yet learned to control his temper, decided it was time for him to make his sacrifice play. When Marshall approached General Pershing, he recalled that the general didn't want to talk to me. He shrugged his shoulders and turned away from me, and I put my hand on his arm and practically forced him to talk. Marshall did not recall exactly what he said to General Pershing, but he had what he called a rather inspired moment. General Pershing responded by saying, well, you must appreciate the troubles we have. Marshall replied, yes, again, General, but we have them every day and many a day, and we have to solve every one of them by night. Fortunately for Marshall, General Pershing did not punish him. Rather, he arranged to speak with Marshall whenever he visited the 1st Division to get Marshall's views on its status. 
As the 1st Division settled into training, Marshall soon received orders to arrange cantonment sites for four additional divisions. To complete this task, Marshall had to figure out what was required in the way of mess halls and bunkhouses, and headquarters and hospital buildings, and everything of that sort. Nobody advised me, Marshall recalled. They didn't have time. They just told me to do it. While making arrangements for the four divisions, Marshall didn't realize that nobody had fixed anything up for the 1st Division, which meant that Marshall's own division was behind all the others in getting the necessary things. Because of the intensity of the training, there was little time to work on other projects. Marshall noted that the soldiers ate in the rain and mud for a month or two under miserable conditions because they didn't have anything to even put a shelter up or a roof in which to serve the food. Kitchens were out in the weather, and the men were out in the weather, except as to their billets, which were largely in barns. In August 1917, Marshall received a promotion to the rank of major. With the training program of the 1st Division fairly well established, Marshall now confronted a different kind of challenge relations with the French. One early encounter occurred when the unit responsible for training the 1st Division was replaced. General Bordeaux, the commander of the 18th French Division, intended to repeat much of the training the 1st Division had already completed, as well as conduct a number of demonstrations that Marshall believed were of little use. Despite Marshall's attempts to reach a compromise, General Bordeaux refused to consider any alteration to his training program. Marshall then drafted a letter to be signed by General Seibert that set forth our position and stated clearly just what assistance we desired from the French, and informed General Bordeaux that if he could not accommodate himself to the proposed arrangement, we would have to go our own way. The threat of ceasing additional French training was enough to convince General Bordeaux to agree to the terms that Marshall had outlined in the letter. Over the next month, French pressure to get American soldiers into combat mounted. At the beginning of September, Georges Clemenceau, who was not yet Prime Minister and had tried unsuccessfully on several occasions to meet with General Pershing, showed up at 1st Division Headquarters to speak with General Seibert. Marshall, who was present for the meeting, recalled that Clemenceau made a short talk about the importance of early entry into the line of American troops, and then proposed having American troops be sent to a very quiet front to gain experience in the trenches with veteran French troops to assist them. General Seibert agreed that the proposal sounded reasonable, but when Clemenceau considered the matter settled, Seibert had to explain that only General Pershing had the authority to approve or reject the proposal. Clemenceau responded by delivering an impassioned speech in which he said he had begun to doubt the good faith of the United States because months had passed and no American troops had ever been seen in the line. He continued, the Americans must enter the battle and make some sacrifice to prove to French soldiers that they meant business and were there to fight to a finish. General Seibert said that he appreciated Clemenceau's view of the situation, but that to put partially trained Americans into battle and risk the possibility of defeat would have much greater negative consequences than those the Allies presently faced. General Seibert remarked that the pressure from Clemenceau would most likely force American troops to go to the front much earlier than planned. He was correct, and the first Americans arrived at the front on October 20th. Cognizant of the immense pressure the U.S. Army faced to join the fighting, the pace of training increased. In addition to training the soldiers, Marshall was also involved with acquiring the necessary equipment for the division to be fully functional, such as horses, trucks, rolling kitchens, and more. Marshall noted that the training in trench warfare was particularly unpleasant because the cold, wet weather left the trenches filled with water, and many of the soldiers only had a single pair of shoes. Marshall saw men with their feet wrapped in gunny sacks, making long marches and going through maneuvers in the mud and snow. On November 3rd, Marshall was on his way to visit the 2nd Battalion of the 16th Infantry. While his vehicle was waiting in front of French Division headquarters, Marshall once again encountered General Bordeaux, who informed him of the first American casualties. 
Frustrated with the reports they received from the regimental and battalion headquarters, General Bordeaux and Marshall traveled to the location of the raid to investigate the matters for themselves. While examining the site, General Bordeaux began to ask questions that suggested he was interested in knowing whether the American soldiers had made a significantly determined resistance. Marshall responded to General Bordeaux that he need entertain no fears with regard to the fighting of our men, and went on to question the problematic order which had prohibited American patrols from going beyond their own wire. When Marshall mentioned the possibility of bringing the matter to General Pershing's attention, General Bordeaux ceased further inquiry on the subject. By the end of November, all of the troops of the 1st Division had completed their trench duty. The units were then ready to enter the final phase of their training, which was a series of open warfare maneuvers. The limited supplies available to the division created numerous difficulties for the soldiers. Marshall noted that, we lacked transportation to shorten their marches and to carry them additional comforts such as firewood and extra blankets during the maneuvers that were being conducted in open areas where the soldiers were constantly exposed to the elements. Marshall referred to this particularly difficult period of the 1st Division as the winter of Valley Forge. The terrible conditions the soldiers endured allowed Marshall to appreciate the importance of maintaining high morale among the soldiers. Marshall noted that even the officers, who had the responsibility of keeping morale up among the soldiers, had become much depressed as a result of the winter gloom and cold, and because of the disheartening news which circulated regarding the progress of the war. This period also marked the transfer of command of the 1st Division from General Seibert to General Robert L. Bullard. In January 1918, General Bullard informed the division that it would be going to the front under the direction of General Monroe of the 69th French Division. This was the first appearance of a complete American division on the front. Without any trucks at their disposal, the soldiers of the 1st Division had to march all the way to their new destination. The weather, as it had been most of the winter, was particularly poor, and it took the division five days to complete the march. Once the division was settled in the sector, Marshall turned his attention to working on new plans for the disposition of the troops and familiarizing himself with the sector by frequent tours to the front. During one of his visits, Marshall noticed that the Germans were firing particularly heavy artillery at infrequent intervals. He consulted with Germain Seligman, the French liaison officer with the 1st Division, who suggested that it was probably registration fire. As registration fire was usually an indication of a possible raid, Marshall drafted a memorandum to the units in the area instructing them to withdraw from their forward trenches during the night and only return to them at daylight. The raid that Marshall anticipated occurred on the morning of March 1st, and the Americans successfully drove the attacking Germans out of the area. Marshall recalled that the result was apparently tremendously reassuring to the higher French, of French officials. The French were so pleased that Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau once again visited the 1st Division headquarters, but this time his reason for visiting was to award the Croix de Guerre to those soldiers who fought exceptionally well. The massive German offensive launched in March sent the Allies scrambling, and as the only American division to have completed training, the 1st Division immediately began making preparations to move. After the division had received its orders, it underwent final training exercises before moving to the front. General Pershing visited the division to view the exercises and later addressed the officers. The way that General Pershing conducted himself in such a trying situation made a great impression on Marshall. Marshall reflected, Surrendering the direct control of his troops, which he had so vigorously maintained in the face of repeated endeavors to prevent the formation of an American army, he released them to be scattered over 400 miles of front. Temporarily jeopardizing his own and even American prestige, he laid all his cards on the table and directed every move toward the salvage of the Allied wreck. Marshall also took note of Pershing's demeanor despite the circumstances he faced, saying, in the midst of a profound depression, he radiated determination and the will to win. His manner and expression, more than his speech, 
fired the officers of the first division with the determination to overcome the enemy wherever he was encountered. The first division completed its move to the front on April 26th. Although neither the first division nor its enemies launched an attack, Marshall noted that our casualties made a formidable daily list. The losses in officers were particularly heavy, Marshall continued, as it was necessary for them to move about to oversee their men. Most of the captains of the machine gun companies had been killed or wounded within 10 days of being at the front. And among the field officers, two lieutenant colonels were killed and two wounded in very little time. As Marshall and the rest of the division adjusted to their new situation, he continued to dwell on the fact that the daily casualty lists created a feeling in each man's mind that he had but a small chance of coming through unscathed. In May, the division was given the task of capturing the heights of Cantini. The Cantini operation, which Marshall termed a new and distinctly American operation, would be the first of its kind during the war. Marshall served as the chief planner for this operation and visited the front several times to perform reconnaissance on the terrain. The initial phase of the Cantini operation was a complete success. Elsewhere along the front, the Germans had broken through opposition on their advance to Chateau Thierry, which resulted in the withdrawal of French artillery and supporting units taking part in the Cantini operation. Despite the problems these withdrawals caused, Marshall understood what was at stake. He acknowledged, Cantini was but a small, in small incident while the great disaster further south, which was befalling our allies, was hourly amassing more serious proportions. The Germans counterattacked twice on the 28th and continued their efforts to drive the Americans out of the town for three additional days. The Germans mounted such a fierce counterattack, despite the fact that the town had no strategic importance, because this first American offensive had been ordered primarily for the purpose of its effect on the English and French armies. Marshall elaborated on the importance of the offensive, saying, for the first division to lose its first objective was unthinkable and would have been, had a most depressing effect on the morale of our entire army as well as those of our allies. For similar reasons, the Germans were determined to overthrow our first success and demonstrate to the world that the American soldier was, as, was of poorer stuff than the German. At the conclusion of the operation, the first division still held Cantini and the Germans never reoccupied it for the remainder of the war. Marshall's service with the 1st Division ended on July 12th when he received orders to proceed to general headquarters for service with the operations section of the general staff. Marshall had hoped that his next orders would have been to command a regiment in the division, but unfortunately for him, the assignment to general headquarters not only removed this possibility, it also removed him from the front. Marshall arrived at Chaumont on the evening of July 13th and was given a room in the house of Chief of Operations Fox Connor. It took some time for Marshall to adjust to the very different kind of problems and plans that he was assigned to work out as part of the general headquarters staff. Marshall observed, these new associates had been working for a year on the plans of organizing for an army of several million men. Questions of ocean tonnage, ports of debarkation, construction of docks, these filled their minds every day. The methods of training divisions newly arrived in France, the problem of securing French 75s and British heavy artillery, the manufacture of tanks, and our complicated relations with the French and English were ordinary topics of conversation and discussion. Marshall contrasted this with his service with the 1st Division, where he had struggled with the concrete proposition of feeding, clothing, training, marching, and fighting the men. Their health and morale was a daily issue, their dead and wounded a daily tragedy. He continued, our minds had been unconcerned with boats and ports and warehouses. Huge projects for the future made no appeal to us. We wanted trained replacements to fill the thinning ranks, more ammunition, and horses. Marshall's first assignment was to gather as much information as he could about the Saint-Mahel salient and begin to develop a plan to reduce it. 
By August 6th, he had completed a preliminary study that called for the participation of four American divisions and three additional divisions in reserve. Planning for the San Miguel operation provided with Mar Marshall with another glimpse into the challenges of alliance warfare. As the situations changed on the British and French fronts, the number of available divisions was constantly in flux, and with each change, Marshall had to make adjustments to his operations plan. Over the course of a week, Marshall submitted a series of updated plans that were based on the availability of 10, 14, and 17 divisions, respectively. Marshall's presence during Marshall Foch's visit to General Pershing in late August 1918 was another instructive encounter uh, for Marshall regarding Allied cooperation. The purpose of Foch's visit was to present the initial proposal for the Meuse-Argonne battle with the possibility of abandoning the Saint-Mael operation, as well as to discuss the possibility of splitting the newly formed American army. Foch's main concern regarding the cancellation of the Saint-Mael offensive was that the American units would not be in position in time for the start of the Meuse-Argonne offensive. General Pershing countered by suggesting that the American army conduct both operations. At their final meeting on September 2nd, Foch and Pershing agreed to begin the Meuse-Argonne operations on September 25th and to limit the scope of the Saint-Miel operation. Marshall updated the plans he prepared accordingly. As a result of the tight timeline that the U.S. Army faced for getting troops in position for the opening of the Meuse-Argonne offensive, Marshall turned his attention to the problem of moving the divisions as soon as he could. The operation that Marshall was tasked with planning involved the movement of approximately 500,000 men, over 2,000 guns, and 900,000 tons of supplies and ammunition, 40 miles from Saint-Miel to the Meuse-Argonne. The movement of all of these men and supplies also had to be coordinated with the withdrawal of the French divisions who were presently at the front. The availability of only three roads over which uh, the movement of the troops and supplies could be accomplished added a further complication to the task. Marshall's successful planning and execution of such a large and complex operation gave him a reputation as a master logistician and earned him the nickname The Wizard. The beginning of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in late September found Marshall preparing orders for the constantly changing battlefront, a task that would keep him busy through the armistice and beyond. Even when the fighting ceased, Marshall had, still had to move divisions around the American sector of the front. Marshall's experiences in World War I were unique in that his work with the 1st Division provided him with an appreciation of the immediate problems that infantry units and their officers face. On the other hand, his work with the operations section of the General Headquarters helped him understand that regiments, battalions, and even divisions were relatively small pieces of the overall U.S. Army, as well as the ways that larger considerations such as logistics, supplies, and alliances affected the Army. The countless formative experiences Marshall had during the war that influenced his efforts to modernize the U.S. Army tend to fall into one of four main categories. Preparedness, which includes both the training and equipping of soldiers, alliance warfare, casualties, and morale. A good starting, part, st starting point for the examination of the preparedness of the U.S. Army is the attack on Cantini, the first American-led offensive of the war, which began on May 28, 1918. The 100th anniversary of this attack, for which Marshall was the chief planner, will occur later this month. The Cantini operation did not occur until 13 months after the U.S. declared war and 11 months after the 1st Division's arrival in France. What caused the division to take nearly one year to join the fight after it arrived in France? Organizing the unit and bringing it up to full strength, and of course, training the soldiers. Marshall appreciated as much as his fellow officers the importance of ensuring that soldiers received adequate training so that they would be successful on the battlefield. As a tireless advocate for preparedness, Marshall realized, as his 1939 letter to Leslie McNair indicates, that in the future, the United States Army might not have the luxury of waiting close to a year to enter into combat. 
Marshall examined ways to increase the efficiency of training without sacrificing quality, but he eventually realized that the best way to guarantee access to a trained fighting force at the outbreak of war was to institute peacetime training. Marshall realized that the American public would never be supportive of having a large standing army. So when he returned to the United States following World War I, he became a strong supporter of compulsory military training because he believed it provided the best opportunity for rapid mobilization. He continued to advocate for some form of universal military training throughout the rest of his career, but was never, never able to garner enough uh, public or congressional support. As chief of staff, Marshall also supported the effort to institute a peacetime draft in 1940 because of the possibility of it afforded to mobilize more quickly if the U.S. entered war. As evidenced by his 1939 letter to General McNair, Marshall's concern with the training of soldiers was not only that they had adequate time to complete a training program, but that the content of the training program reflected the realities of war. During World War I, Marshall witnessed the speed at which situations evolved and the need for officers to make decisions with limited information. This stood in stark contrast to the instruction many officers received in the Army school system, where an emphasis was placed on writing five-paragraph orders and solving class exercises with accurate and detailed maps. Marshall realized that as the speed of warfare increased, officers would not have the luxury of dictating lengthy orders or have access to detailed maps. When he became the assistant commandant at Fort Benning in 1927, Marshall set out to completely overhaul the infantry school so that the course of instruction resembled the realities of modern warfare. Marshall moved the majority of the instruction from the classroom to the outdoors, had students conduct exercises with an incorrect map or no map at all, and encouraged students to propose creative ways to answer problems rather than working towards the school book solution. With the U.S. entry into World War II, Marshall worked to ensure that this teaching philosophy was adopted by other Army schools and training sites. Marshall was determined that after going through their training, U.S. soldiers would be able to overcome any challenges they encountered on the battlefield. Marshall's experiences during World War I taught him that ensuring soldiers were adequately tra trained is only one part of preparedness. Soldiers also needed to be properly outfitted and equipped for their duty. Since many of the soldiers sailing with the 1st Division for France only received their rifles prior to boarding the train, Marshall recognized that the training they had received was only marginally helpful and would likely have to be repeated now that they had their rifles. Had the personnel been available for the machine gun and 37-millimeter units that Marshall was organizing on the voyage over to France, they would have been completely ineffective without the necessary equipment to carry out their assignments. The inability of the U.S. Army to acquire or produce some of the material it needed, such as tanks and artillery, left it in a difficult position of having to borrow these important pieces of, of equipment from the British and the French. As Marshall's experiences revealed, this was problematic because these essential components could be removed from an operation at a moment's notice if it was determined that they were needed for another operation that was considered a higher priority. Marshall's encounters with French and British leadership during World War I proved invaluable when he became chief of staff. Marshall quickly became aware that even though the Allies had the same broad objective, their ideas about how to achieve it differed greatly. When this was combined with the different agendas, cultures, and personalities of individual leaders, it is not surprising that the Allies had to put forth considerable effort to reach a consensus. The leadership of General Pershing also helped Marshall to understand the situations in which it may be necessary to stand firm on a decision as well as the times in which it is best to yield to the wishes of others. The number of casualties that the U.S. Army sustained during World War I also had a profound impact on Marshall and his leadership during World War II. Throughout Marshall's memoirs, he frequently commented on the frequency and number of casualties. Starting with the Cantini operation, the U.S. Army was engaged, engaged in active combat for approximately 200 days. During this period, the number of Americans killed was more than 50,000. 
In the final three months, the number of U.S. soldiers killed was around 17,000 per month, and the number of soldiers killed rose from 1,000 per week to 2,000 per week in September, and reached a peak of 6,000 during the first week in October as a result of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. Marshall described the expectations for casualties during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in this way. About 50,000 casualties was the percentage normally to be expected, and hospitalization was prepared accordingly. Nevertheless, if we suffered that many casualties during the brief period involved, the American people, not accustomed as was our allies to such huge payments in human life, would have seized upon the criticism of any allied official as a basis for condemning our own commander-in-chief. Marshall understood that as casualties increased, public support for war decreased. Marshall kept this in the forefront of his mind, as well as President Roosevelt's during World War II, and it was why his primary objective during that conflict was to end the war as quickly as possible with the smallest number of casualties. Marshall's service with the 1st Division also made him keenly aware of the plight of the regular infantry soldier. Marshall observed many of the difficulties and hardships that these soldiers faced, largely as a result of the fact that the U.S. Army itself was disorganized and unprepared for war. Marshall knew that the soldiers had been through a lot and that much of what they endured was particularly difficult because they found themselves defending a foreign land and fighting a war they may not have understood completely. Because of this, Marshall took the issue of morale very seriously. He went to Great Lakes to make sure that he did everything in his power to mean high levels of morale during World War II. This ranged from supporting USO tours and other forms of entertainment for soldiers stationed overseas to the V-mail program and even setting up makeshift post exchanges for soldiers at the front to sell tobacco and Coca-Cola. Marshall had a policy of never allowing any sales of comfort items to occur in the rear until they had begun up front because Marshall observed the exact opposite taking place during the First World War and he knew the resentment it caused. Fox Connor, who oversaw Marshall while serving as the head of the operations section of the general headquarters, paid Marshall the ultimate tribute when he offered the following advice to Dwight Eisenhower. Connor said, there is a man near genius and if war comes again, which it is going to come, and it will probably be in your time, you can do no better than to tie yourself to General Marshall because he is a man that can fight the war because he understands it. Marshall's World War I experiences <coughs> solidified his reputation as a competent staff officer and master logistician, exposed him to the nuances and difficulties of alliance warfare, revealed the difficulties of raising, training, and equipping an army, and introduced him to new strategies and tactics. Over time, the American public's memory of the, world, of the war would focus on victories and gloss over the mistakes and wasteful sacrifices. But Marshall drew heavily from his experiences during the conflict to ensure the U.S. Army would be better prepared in the future than it had been for World War I. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.